are very fortunate to have with us today former Solicitor General Paul Clement. I've had the privilege of knowing Paul for 30 years now, uh, so pardon me for addressing him informally. Hope you don't mind. Uh, we first met in the spring of 1992 when I was among those interviewing him for uh, a clerkship with Justice Scalia, uh, for whom I was uh, then clerking. Paul, I don't think I've ever publicly told the, the, the saga of how I had to wrestle the justice for days to persuade him to hire another Silverman clerk. But uh, uh, 17 days from now, uh, Paul will make his extraordinary 110th Supreme Court argument as he represents high school football coach Joseph Kennedy in the case of Kennedy uh, versus Remerton, which... Uh which uh, Paul's colleague Aaron Murphy discussed on our second panel. No one has argued more Supreme Court cases this century, indeed this millennium, uh, than, than Paul has, and uh, no one is more highly regarded for the quality of his oral advocacy. Over his career, Paul has advanced the cause of religious liberty, both as a government lawyer and in the private sector. If the arc of the law can be said to have bent increasingly towards religious liberty over the past three decades, there's no question that Paul has helped to do much of the bending. We're going to explore in this conversation uh, Paul's role in establishment clause cases and in free exercise cases. I'll use the term free exercise to include not only the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, but also federal statutes that protect uh, religious liberty, such as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, which I think most of you know is known by the rather ugly uh, shorthand RIFRA, and the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, which is known by the even uglier shorthand RLUPA. So Paul, let's go back to the start of your career uh, 30 years ago and, and discuss the, uh, the terrain of religious liberty back then. Uh, employment Division versus Smith, which got a lot of criticism on the previous panel, uh, was decided, I believe, while you were in law school. Uh, Lemon uh, v. Kurtzman, with its uh, infamous uh, three-part Lemon test that uh, Chief Justice Berger seems to have uh, pulled out of his ear, uh, had been around since uh, 1971. Uh, it was not uh, a, a, the heyday of religious liberty. It, it was definitely not, Ed. It definitely was not. So uh, first, let me thank everybody for, uh, for, for coming to this great conference, um, you know, the, your organization and... And uh, the Gray Center, I think, are uh, a match made in heaven for this kind of conference. So I'm delighted to be part of it. Um, I also want to publicly thank you for not putting the kibosh on uh, my clerkship uh, prospects uh, three decades ago. Um, the, the decision is very much the justices, but, but I do think the clerks can, can wrangle a veto now and then. So, um, so I really do want to publicly thank you for that. My story would have been better if there were any truth to it. Well, there, there, there is that. There is that. The, the Silberman connection did help. Um, so, uh, but, but to answer your question about sort of the state of the law then, it, it definitely wasn't a, a happy time for sort of religious liberty in terms of the Supreme Court jurisprudence. If there was any sort of uh, daylight, if there was any sort of hope on the horizon, it was that the doctrine at the time was so obviously unstable. I mean, it was the, it was the staple of law schools at the time to teach Establishment Clause jurisprudence almost as a humorous interlude between other constitutional provisions because the doctrine had gotten to the point where maps were okay, but globes weren't, or vice versa, I forget. But it had just gotten to this sort of focus on the minutiae, um, the interior design of creches, and whether there were sufficient reindeer were kind of the doctrinal staples of the day. So, so we have come a long way since then. And as I say, if there were any, if there's any glimmer of hope, it was that you really couldn't sustain the doctrine of the, the, you know, the 70s, 80s, and 90s 
confused uh, because it was just internally inconsistent and incoherent. I was initially inc inclined to try to track uh, separate establishment clause and free exercise developments, but there's so much interplay between them, and, and in so many cases you see that they're pitted, that they're pitted against each other. And you can see a very, uh, you know, uh, a view of the establishment clause on steroids could leave very little room for uh, free exercise. Uh, so I'd like to talk a little bit about how about that interplay and, and, and how it may have changed over the years. Now, one case while you were a law clerk, uh, odd case involved, uh, Curious Joel. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I, I think the important thing about Curious Joel, or however you exactly say it, um, is that it was a case that really, I think, tried to show from the Justice Scalia standpoint in his dissent that there should have been a really large sphere for legislative accommodation. Um, I know the Smith decision is most of Justice Scalia's fans' least favorite Scalia decision, and I know that's particularly true here. Uh, but, but one thing that is missed sometimes in thinking about his Smith decision is how much he talks about the permissibility of legislative accommodation of religion. And I think that the the Curious Joel case coming, you know, just a few years after Smith, I, I think he almost thought of it as the legislative accommodation kind of bookend to Smith, much the way Lakumi was a bookend to Smith and showing that there actually were legislatures out there that would facially discriminate against uh, religion. And, so and Let me just interject. Sure. I, this, this case may be obscure to lots of folks. I should have, should have uh, briefly explained that this was a, a case in which a New York law carved out a school district that followed the lines of a village that was a religious enclave of uh, Satmar Hasidim, if I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly. And the court ruled uh, six to three, this is 19, 1994, that the carve-out violates the Establishment Clause. And I have to say, they ruled in that way almost inexplicable. Because what, what, I mean, what could possibly be wrong with a state trying to accommodate a religious minority by creating a school district that basically mapped on to a enclave where they had a particular religious minority was, was prevalent, and because of some of the uh, practices of the religious minority, they, they they had some unique needs for, for public education. If my memory serves, it, the, the, they really took care of most of the children through private schooling, but for special needs kids, they really needed a the, the funding that came with the public school system and the superior accommodations that, that they had. So it was just this kind of, you know, in my humble view, one of the kind of most kind of humane pieces of legislation emanating from Albany uh, in decades. And yet a majority of the Supreme Court said that that crossed the line and became an establishment of religion, which to this day I find a little bit inexplicable. And of course our old boss with his typical understatement began his dissent. The court today finds that the powers that be up in Albany have conspired to effect an establishment of the Satmar Hasidim. Um, now uh, after your clerkship, one of the first cases you worked on in private practice uh, involved uh, Wisconsin's school, cho school choice litigation uh, and a supposed conflict between the free exercise and establishment clause. Yeah, in this case, even even more than Curious Joel shows the tension between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, at least in the eyes of jurists at the time. Uh, because what had happened is that Wisconsin, notwithstanding some of the precedents under Lemon, um, took this kind of novel experiment in school choice uh, back in the, the starting in the kind of early 90s. And in part because of concerns of the, of the Lemon-era cases, the very first version of the Wisconsin 
Wisconsin School Choice Program was limited to non-sectarian private schools. And that was challenged back in the early 90s on the grounds that that was a free exercise violation, statutory discrimination against religion. And the then Attorney General of the state of Wisconsin, uh, who was a Democrat uh, appointed uh, or elected uh, Attorney General, defended the pilot school choice program on the ground that the Establishment Clause necessitated that overt discrimination against religion. And the idea was in the argument that the state made at the time that if we included sectarian schools, even on a non-discriminatory basis, in the school choice program, that would be an impermissible establishment of religion. As a testament to the law at the time, that argument prevailed. Um, and so that challenge to the initial pilot program uh, was, was unsuccessful. But then the legislature, having seen the success and the promise of the pilot program, decided that they wanted to expand it to religious schools. And they were undeterred by concerns about uh, Lemon and the like, even though at the time those concerns were pretty real given the state of the doctrine. And they expanded the program to include the religious schools. And then the state's attorney general essentially had to recuse because he had already signed all these papers that said if it was expanded to include religious schools, it would be unconstitutional. So turning around and saying, well, actually, it's constitutional after all didn't seem like a great idea. Uh, so Governor Thompson was then in a position to appoint outside counsel to sort of fill that gap. And uh, he picked Ken Starr. And uh, and, and I was uh, a young associate working with Ken at Kirkland and Ellis back in the day. And then, then a sort of funny thing happened, which is on the eve of the argument, uh, one of the justices on the Wisconsin Supreme Court recused herself. And that left the Wisconsin Supreme Court with only six justices. And the six justices split evenly three to three. So normally when the justices on a high court split evenly, it affirms the lower court decision by operation of law. But this case had actually been litigated under the Wisconsin Supreme Court's original jurisdiction. So there had been, there, there was no lower court case to fall back on. And so under the rules that prevailed, this has happened a couple of previous times in state history. So under the rules that prevailed, it had to go back to the trial court and start over um, and work its way back up. So if they split three to three again, there'd at least be something to defer to. Uh, but in the interim, uh, the justice who recused herself stepped down from the bench and Governor Thompson appointed her successor. Um, not, you know, obviously there was no higher priority for Governor Thompson than the school choice program. So unless he had done a very bad job in judge picking, there was a good chance that if we got back up there, uh, we would prevail four to three. But we had to get back up there. And there's no way to sort of kind of hit the rewind button and go back on the original jurisdiction. The, the long and the short of it is we had to go through two rounds of litigation, but it didn't matter that much because all eyes were going to be back on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. It worked out great for me because it created an opportunity for a very young lawyer to get a lot of responsibility in the case because the case really didn't matter that much. They were just setting the stage for the ultimate Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, re-review. Uh, so I, I did get an opportunity to argue the Wisconsin school choice case in the trial court um, in Dane County, Madison. I remember the courtroom very well because it had all the all the pomp and dignity of a kindergarten schoolroom. Um, uh, but but this very weighty issue was 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 being litigated there, um, and then did make its way up to the to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. The Wisconsin State Supreme Court affirmed the the, the program's constitutionality in a real land breaking uh, opinion. And then that same issue obviously got back up to the Supreme Court uh, of the United States a few years later in the Zellman case. Your home state, of course, too, of Wisconsin. Yes, absolutely. Now, and what I, I think uh, in retrospect was clearly a pivotal decision in your career, you left private practice sometime in the late 1990s to become a staffer for Senator John Ashcroft. Uh, I also had worked uh, uh, as a Senate staffer for two, and a, uh, about two or three years.
years. I highly recommend it, not for too long, but for a stint. Um, and you were, uh, I believe, chief counsel of the Constitution subcommittee uh, uh, for him. Uh, Congress was trying to figure out how to respond to the uh, 1997 Supreme Court decision in the city of Bernie versus Flores. This, as many of you will know, is the uh, decision that uh, ruled that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, as a matter of uh, Congress's uh, constitutional powers, could not apply against the states. By its terms, RIFRA um, applies to both federal government and the state governments. But the court ruled here that, that, that it could not apply um, against the state governments. And Congress then was trying to figure out uh, what to do, and that, that fell in part in your lap. That's right. So the, the, the sort of trajectory of this is obviously there was the Smith decision, and then just one year after I clerked the Supreme Court, uh, after Congress came and, and enacted RIFRA, the Supreme Court came in with the city of Bernie decision and said that that could not constitutionally apply to the state and local governments. And so obviously Congress had passed RIFRA nearly unanimously, and even back then, that was exceptionally rare. Uh, so there was a lot of continuing interest in trying to do everything that could be done to sort of fill the gap. And it was really the process uh, that was going on when I was there that ultimately culminated in RELUPA. Uh, but we did some hearings when we were there trying to kind of explore the constitutional limits on the ability of the federal government to restore kind of the pre-Smith law as to state and local governments in certain circumstances, kind of using the spending clause in part and uh, and and the like, um, having sort of tried using Section Five of the Fourteenth Amendment and been told by the Supreme Court that that didn't work. So it was it was it was actually a really interesting issue in terms of the the legislative process because usually in the legislative process the problem is having enough votes or having bipartisan support for something. And in this context, it was that wasn't the problem. The problem was where is the legislative power to do more to protect religious liberty? And I will say this was going on. I was on the Hill from like 97 to 99. And it's interesting because within a few years after that, you start to see a little bit of this grand coalition that supported RIFRA starting to break down at the edges uh, to the point where now the grand coalition isn't so grand. But but back then, there still really was this sense on almost every member of Congress that protecting uh, religious liberty was good government, good politics, all of the above, something everybody could support. Now, we'll talk in a little bit, uh, let's talk some more about the upcoming Kennedy versus Bremerton uh, case. But uh, Kennedy isn't your first prayer at a football game case. Uh, you had one, you you were involved with the Santa Fe v. Doe case uh, that was decided in 2000. No, that's exactly right. After I left the Hill, because I, I wholly endorse what Ed said, working on the Hill is a great way to spend a couple of years of your life. Um, the emphasis could be on great or it could be on a couple. You know, you could go either way on that. But but after, uh, I, I had this sort of really pretty clear experience, which is uh, it, it happened while I was on the Hill that the Clinton impeachment process was going on. And I realized I was a lot more interested in the constitutional issues surrounding impeachment than I was about sort of the typical legislative material that I was supposed to help the senator get through. And that was kind of my signal that having had this detour, I should get back to private practice. Um, and I ended up uh, at, at, at King & Spaulding trying to sort of build a, uh, a, a an appellate practice there. And Ken Starr, who I'd worked with at Kirkland back in the day, was very helpful in introducing me to uh, Jay Sekula, um, who obviously many of you know and has become a, a dear friend of mine. Um, and Jay gave me an opportunity to sort of pitch in on some of his uh, cases. Back then he was litigating in the Supreme Court, I think more often uh, than he has since. Um, and uh, and one of those cases was the Santa Fe case. Um, and I helped, I mean, I think I was on the brief. I helped him sort of formulate the, the some of the arguments, also helped him formulate the amicus strategy, which I'll mention in a minute. But, uh, but this was a case where a school in Texas um, had a program where they essentially created a forum, is the way I might describe it, um, not the way the majority opinion 
ultimately describes it. But they sort of created a forum for students at the beginning of football games, and the students would rotate through during the year, where they would have the opportunity to solemnize the the, the occasion, which in Texas, I mean, a, a high school football game is a heck of an occasion. So it needs it needs an appropriate uh, sort of recognition of that. And of course, some of the students, it would be expected, um, most of them perhaps, uh, would, would do that through a prayer. But that wasn't required. The, the student could say something that was non-religious they wanted to. And as I said, it rotated. So we pitched this as kind of a neutral opportunity for student speech that could be religious, didn't have to be, and ought to be consistent with the Supreme Court's case law, even at the time, um, in the very late 90s. Um, and, and, and we did fall short in the effort in the end um, in, in, in a decision that um, maybe one of these days will be reconsidered by the court. I don't think it's necessary in the Kennedy case uh, itself. Um, but part of the amicus effort in that case was, you know, at that time, the only way to win a religious liberty case in the Supreme Court, or really any case in the Supreme Court, was to get Justice O'Connor's vote and Justice Kennedy's vote, which is no mean feat. Um, so we thought as part of that effort, it would be really good to have one amicus brief by a former O'Connor clerk. And so uh, Viet Dinh was, was, was tapped. The power uh, to do, of reason. To do that brief. Yes, power of reason. Um, and uh, for the Kennedy brief, we, we, we got a, you know, then um, still obscure lawyer who'd been working with Ken Starr on his independent counsel investigation named Brett Kavanaugh uh, to do that brief. So um, it, was, it was a great opportunity to work with some, some dear friends um, in, in an effort to try to get to do the right thing. In 2001, uh, George W. Bush becomes president, ends up selecting John Ashcroft as his attorney general, and suddenly you're in the Justice Department. Yeah, lucky me, for sure. Um, you know, the when some people ask me for career advice, I say it's really easy. All you have to do is identify who the next Republican attorney general is, and then you go work for him now, for their attorney general. And everything will sort of fall into place. Um, and just to sort of underscore how fortunate this was, I mean, you know, John Ashcroft did not have the most immediately obvious uh, sort of recommendation to become attorney general since he had just lost his re-election bid to uh, a dead person. Um, you know, the, the, the person he was running against promoted most of the campaign was Governor Carnahan of Missouri, and he was tragically killed in a, in, a, in a plane accident. And then his wife announced that she would take his position if he were in fact elected. And his name was still the one on the ballot. And in a very close election, uh, Senator Ashcroft fell just short um, and did make him available for the job. And when President Bush uh, picked him for the job, um, I was delighted to have the chance to, to work with him again since uh, he had been my boss on Capitol Hill. And I ended up in the SG's office. And, and I have to say, it was, from, from my perspective, I mean, what a, what a fortunate turn of events because when, when you're a law clerk, you, you have the opportunity to see the briefing. You know, you're not, you're not the justice, but you're still a consumer of legal briefing. And I was so impressed at, as my time at a law, as a law clerk with the quality of the work in the SG's office. And at that time, you know, there are people like Bill Kelly and John Manning and others, uh, Miguel Estrada were in that office. And they, they prepared excellent briefs, wonderful arguments. And you thought as a law clerk, wow, if at some point I had an opportunity to work in the SG's office, what it would great thing that would be. And then to have an opportunity relatively early in my career to not just work in the office, but to, to be Ted Olson's principal deputy in the office was really an incredible opportunity. So very yeah, fortunate. So, so you're principal deputy for, I guess, more than three years, and then you were solicitor general for pretty much the remainder of, of, of George W. Bush's uh, time in office. Uh, so many important cases decided then. Uh, Zelman v. Simmons-Harris, the school voucher case we've talked about. Locke v. Davey, uh, on the other side of the ledger, uh, this was a uh, seven to two ruling that the free exercise clause um, allowed the state of Washington to fund a scholarship program that excluded students pursuing a degree in, in theology. Uh, you submitted a brief in that case, uh, unsuccessful, but uh, I think we see the same issue uh, coming up in uh, other contexts.
us now and makes us wonder wh uh, whether Locke v. Davy is going to end up being confined to a very uh, narrow realm. Well, you'd think that like a brief that you wrote in a case where you lost seven to two would not be a brief that you were that proud of. But I, I, I still think uh, the SG's brief in, in Locke v. Davy was a fine piece of work. And I think if, if anybody wants to dig it up and take a look at it, um, it doesn't look that different from the majority opinion in like Trinity Lutheran or Espinoza, um, except there aren't as many apologetic footnotes. Um, so, so, so I actually think it's, you know, it was, it, it was the right view then, um, you know, whether, whether that remains a decision about Washington State's ministerial sort of scholarship program and remains, you know, with this much precedential effect, uh, or whether the court ultimately revisits it and formally overrules it, I don't know, but I do think, you know, that's a case where, uh, at best, that, that decision over time has been limited to its facts. And I think the fact that that decision was seven to two, um, you know, shows how much change there's been over time. But I will say, if, if, if memory serves, Chief Justice Rehnquist took the majority opinion in that case, and I don't think he believed a word of it. And th that's a highly controversial practice where a particularly a Chief Justice will take an opinion and in order to keep it kind of narrow, um, you know, Chief Justice Berger, I think, tried to do that without great success in terms of sort of shaping the law. But, but I think maybe we ought to all tip our hat to Chief Justice Rehnquist on this one because Locke v. Davy, because of the way he wrote it, became a very easy decision for the court to distinguish um, in Trinity Lutheran and in Espinosa. And, you know, maybe with the composition of the court now, it, it wouldn't have mattered. Um, no matter what it said, you could have sort of cast it aside. But I think particularly given the court that decided Trinity Lutheran, I, I think the fact that Chief Justice Rehnquist kept that case for himself and wrote it about as narrowly as he could, I, I, I think probably did bear dividends roughly 20 years later. And then in uh, 2005, the court decided a case called Cutter v. Wilkinson. I believe you argued uh, this one. This is a case that involved a challenge to our LUPA um, and an establishment clause challenge to our LUPA. And you weighed in on behalf of five prisoners, including, I believe, a, a Wiccan and a Satanist. Indeed, indeed. Um, this was a case that, you know, so when, you're, when you're the Solicitor General, you generally basically have the opportunity to pick the cases in a particular sitting. We pick one of those cases uh, to argue. And in a typical sitting, at least back then when the court had a few more cases, um, there, there would be maybe a dozen cases a sitting. The government would have participated in roughly 10 of those cases. So in a particular sitting, you'd have 10 cases to pick from. Um, in, in some sittings, the case that you should argue would just leap out. There's, you know, if there was a Gitmo case or there was a case about the president's authority under some particularly important program. Of course, the Solicitor General should argue that case. But sometimes you had a little more uh, opportunity to uh, pick your case. And Cutter was one. I, I wasn't too worried that the court was going to strike down RELUPA on establishment clause grounds. It seemed like at that point the doctrine had gotten to the point where there wasn't a great risk of that. But but I really did want to argue the Cutter case myself. It actually argued the same issue in one of the lower courts. Um, and, and part of this was, although RELUPA passed, I think, a year or so after I left the Hill, the, the work that we did on the Hill, some of the hearings, some of the initial discussions, really paved the way for RELUPA to try to replace RIFRA to the extent it could. And so I felt just a kind of a special uh, affinity with the statute and the opportunity essentially to defend something that I'd been involved in on the very early stages on Capitol Hill was, was something I just couldn't resist. And it's a funny thing about religious liberty, right? I mean, you know, sometimes there are uh, doctrines um, that become established in cases involving very, you know, minority religions, religions that, you know, some of us won't even recognize as religions. But, but those cases are the building blocks for basic protections for religious liberty uh, that end up protecting everyone 
uh, including uh, majority religions. And, and I know that, you know, there are a lot of groups that are dedicated to litigating religious liberty that have kind of recognized um, this, this, this basic insight. In some ways, it's almost easier to win on behalf of minority religions because if minority religions are accommodated, um, it doesn't sort of bring down the whole program or has this perceived threat to the whole program. Um, and in recent years, and maybe this is a segue to cases like Hobby Lobby and Little Sisters, but in some ways in recent years, it seemed harder to convince the court that they should accommodate plurality religions with sort of more adherence because it's more disruptive to other uh, non-adherents that may be in the same workplace or the like. Before we jump to the Hobby Lobby and, and Little Sisters, let me uh, ask about the Ten Commandments uh, monuments cases, um, both sided in 2005. These are split decisions, each uh, five four uh, involving uh, monuments. Uh, well, I guess in, in Texas, there's a, 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 a monument on the uh, grounds of the state capitol. In Kentucky, I believe there was some sort of poster displays in, in courthouses. I'm not sure they'll be called monuments. Uh, Justice Breyer was a swing vote um, in these in these two cases. Uh, uh, curious, um, do you have any observations on, on these cases or his role? And also, just how things have, have changed, if they have, say, compared to the, the, the recent uh, Bladensburg uh, cross ruling. Well, to just say, as you, as you did correctly, that in an important religious liberty slash religious display case that Justice Breyer was the critical swing vote is to underscore how much the court has changed. And I, I think the, the case that involved the monument in Texas was a case called Van Orden. And Van Orden really did sort of pave the way for the Bladensburg Cross case. And, you know, it's possible that if Van Orden hadn't been decided, the Bladensburg Cross case might have been a little closer in terms of the outcome. But, but the fact that you go from Justice Breyer casting the decisive vote in, compared to the Bladensburg Cross, a relatively modest, um, you know, monument to the fact that, you know, the court uh, overwhelmingly uh, sides with, uh, with, with with the people defending the Bladensburg Cross just is another one of these like landmarks or hallmarks about how much uh, the court has moved on these issues. But but I do think it's worth it's worth pausing just to say just a, a thing or two about Justice Breyer because one, one of the one of the problems in, in in this town that we've both lived in for the last thirty years is people are sort of so focused on what's next. And when somebody like Justice Breyer steps down, all the speculation immediately goes into who's going to replace him and what's you know her jurisprudence going to be like and all this stuff. That there, there probably is not enough of a reflection on the public service of the, the justice who's, who's who's stepping down. And you know, Justice Breyer was 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 not a vote that I could always get in my cases, uh, but he was a vote that you could sometimes get in surprising ways. And the Van Orden case really is is one of the cases that stands out um, in in my mind because you know sometimes it's relatively easy to get a justice when they're the sixth vote or the seventh vote, uh, but to get a justice to cast the fifth vote in a case that you know is is sort of would otherwise go kind of the way that you might expect them to vote. Um, that's 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 a pretty significant judicial act by that justice, and I think it probably if you isolate cases like that, and Van Orden's one of them, you can really tell a lot about that justice and uh, his or her jurisprudence. And in this case, what what Van Orden I think really stands for is Justice Breyer had was was not inherently hostile in the religion cases the way some justices on the left can be, and he was really first and foremost in this area of the law and in so many others, a pragmatist. I mean, he, you know, he, he certainly understood the doctrine. He could write a doctrinal opinion uh, if, if he needed to, but he was really kind of focused on the practical effects of the decision. And I think for him, there was a big difference between the Kentucky case where some relatively recent, relatively small displays that probably most people didn't notice were put up on the walls would then be taken down from the walls to comply with this decision. I thought that was completely different than taking a monument uh, that had stood on the Capitol grounds for a couple of decades without real objection. I think, yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, and then taking the proverbial wrecking ball to it. Now, I suppose they probably would have not actually had a wrecking ball, but sort of the visual of this long-standing monument being removed from the Capitol grounds, I think he understood that people would perceive that as the hostility to the religion, that you know, there's a, a lot of Establishment Clause cases that say that, the, that, that, that we're supposed to not have uh, an established religion, but we're also not supposed to be hostile to religion. And, and that's usually just dictum that doesn't get applied. But I think in the Van Orden case, uh, I think his vote was really impelled by the sense that, that you couldn't take down this longstanding uh, monument without sending very much the wrong message. And I was reminded of this, um, I, I, was, I was talking to Kelly Shackelford uh, at First Liberty, who was involved in the Bladensburg Cross case, and he reminded me that one of the Fourth Circuit judges um, had the had the brilliant suggestion that maybe they could take the arms off the cross um, and just slice, slice those down, and then the monument could stand, and that would be uh, sort of Solomonic justice, uh, probably not the way the judge put it. But, um, and, and, you know, that, that, the, the message of hostility that something like that or taking down uh, the monument on the Capitol grounds in Texas would send, I think, is something that really resonated with Just Breyer. Let's talk briefly about uh, Hobby Lobby, uh, Zubik, and Little Sisters before we get to where we are and how you, how you see the future of um, important matters like Smith and Lemon and perhaps even uh, the uh, uh, Hardison, uh, uh, the reading of the Title, Title VII uh, uh, accommodation. Um, I think uh, you argued all three of these cases, Hobby Lobby, Zubik and Little Sisters, uh, and uh, they presented different aspects of the um, so-called HHS contraceptive mandate, the um, regulatory implementation of Obamacare. I think this is really where we, we, we see full bore the stigmatization of religious liberty, the use of scare quotes, uh, the um, notion that uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which as you pointed out, had been adopted almost uh, unanimously in 1993 with obviously a, a bipartisan coalition, um, now um, was very controversial. State refers um, led to boycotts. <laughs> um, and you see the real clash between the, the um, uh, religious liberty and the left's regulatory agenda. Yeah, these are these are hard cases to discuss briefly because, <laughs> um, you know, they're hugely important cases. And I, I really feel like I was just blessed to get an opportunity to be involved in those cases. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a practicing Catholic, so the opportunity to represent the little sisters of the poor um, is about the best client I can imagine happening. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what the with the Biden administration's kind of next move is on these issues. But I think they would be well advised to figure out a way to give an exemption to the little sisters of the poor just so they don't have to, you know, Biden v. little sisters of the poor is just not a case where I'd want to be, uh, you know, sort of betting on on, on Biden. Um, so, so, so these cases were just a wonderful opportunity to get involved. But as, as, and as wonderful a, a client as little sisters have been, you know, I first got the opportunity to represent Hobby Lobby. Um, and they were also an amazing, amazing client. And I got the opportunity to fly down to Oklahoma and to sort of see their facilities and see how, you know, they walk the walk on, uh, you know, a daily basis. Um, one of the things like they, a lot of stores of a similar volume to Hobby Lobby do what's called backhauling. So if they deliver their goods from one store to another, they have essentially an empty truck. And so they'll back, most stores will backhaul pretty much anything in order to save a few bucks. Um, and they had a policy that they wouldn't uh, backhaul alcohol. Um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't carry shot glasses in, uh, in, in the stores because that was all inconsistent with their religious beliefs. So it was really just what, what great clients in these cases. And, and the clients in these cases really are the heroes. So I just so, so fortunate to get a chance to be involved in these cases. But as you say, Ed, these cases really show that, you know, it's one thing if you're representing sort of one uh, religious adherent in a prison who wants to have a beard or something like that, and you're, you're miles away from the agenda of the left. But if you get in these cases where the religious liberty claim bumps up to, you know, free contra 
contraception, a woman's right to choose, um, you know, issues of sexual orientation. That's 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 where things are really getting hard uh, in religious liberty cases. That's where the Grand Coalition has kind of completely broken down. And as you say, religious liberty starts being put in scare quotes um, as a synonym for discrimination, hate, whatever. Um, and and that's why these cases are so important because uh, the 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 claim of religious liberty is hugely important. The cases, if you just look at them objectively, should be easy, frankly, because, uh, you know, the idea in this area of the law is you can only force someone to violate their sincerely held religious beliefs and substantially burden that if it's the least restrictive alternative for the way for the government to do that. And so the way that that generally plays out is if you have a policy as the government where you really can't have exceptions just in the nature of the program uh, and you have taxes, for better or for worse, are a good example, um, then, then, you know, those are the cases where the government has a chance under strict scrutiny. But in a case where the government has already grandfathered like thousands of employers and millions of employees for reasons no more, you know, uh, sort of substantial than administrative convenience, and they've given an exemption to some religious groups out of a recognition that this contraception mandate might be religiously controversial, but refuse to give it to other religious groups that are almost indistinguishable, that ought to, that ought to be a case that's nine to nothing. Uh, and these cases have been a tough and long slog, and they haven't been nine to nothing. Um, what, what I'll say is, to me, the most interesting thing about these cases, just as I was reflecting on it, is there was something about the religious claim here which was ultimately bottomed on sort of the idea of what makes you complicit in the actions of others. That that for some reason, judges, even a couple of pretty good judges, um, like Judge Smith of the Fifth Circuit, surprised me his vote in this. But, but, but judges, I think because there's a very similar legal concept of complicity, responsibility, aiding and abetting liability, they were really like willing to kind of fly spec and question whether the, the nuns really sort of had this right. And sometimes they did it explicitly, more often they did it implicitly. And you, you put that next to a religious belief like transubstantiation, and it ought to be easier for the secular judges to accept the, the nuns' concerns about complicity than for them to accept transubstantiation. But the one they're willing to defer to, because it's so outside of their sort of compass, and the other, they were perfectly happy to second-guess. So that's always been a, an aspect of the case that kind of fascinated me, uh, and was part of why this was a tough slog to get it back to the, the Supreme Court. One last uh, big question, or maybe two, two-part question here, uh, the future of uh, Employment Division versus Smith and Lemon. Uh, Lemon uh, arguably has been um, uh, marginalized into insignificance. Justice Scalia, of course, had his famous uh, line uh, uh, comparing Lemon to a, some ghoul in a late-night horror movie that repeatedly sits up in his grave, and, uh, but explained that such a docile and useful monster is worth keeping around, because you never know when you, when you, when you might want to use him. Um, but it does seem that, that, that Lemon isn't a, a big obstacle now. Uh, Smith, I think, has also been hemmed in. There have been exceptions explicitly or implicitly. The whole notion of what constitutes neutral and generally applicable um, has been contested and, and developed. But I think it's fair to say that Smith, um, as we saw from the last panel, um, remains um, uh, an important uh, decision out there, uh, not, not, not much liked by, by uh, most folks in this room. Um, uh, others of us may wonder what the alternative really is. That, of course, came up in, in uh, Fulton uh, v. City of Philadelphia. But any, any uh, closing thoughts on, on these two cases? Sure. So, uh, I mean, to start with, just to, to stick with our theme about the trajectory of the law here, I think when we when we were coming out of law school, like, you know, people did talk a lot about Lemon and Lemon being a, a terrible precedent, unworkable precedent, really needed to overrule Lemon. Um, I'd almost venture to guess that when we were coming out of law school, you know, conservatives would, 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 would talk about Lemon, you know, right right below Roe as, as, as cases that really, you know, were, 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 were wrong turns in the 1970s. 
70s and needed to be reconsidered by the court. Um, and people really didn't talk about overruling Smith at that point. And, uh, you know, maybe it's because it was a relatively recent decision, maybe because it was authored by, you know, the most you know, seemingly uh, conservative justice up there. Um, and, and the fact that we've now got to the point where Lemon, although it's never been overruled, is arguably not very relevant. And, you know, now Smith is very much in the sights, does show kind of where the trajectory has been on these issues of religious liberty over the, over the last three decades. Um, I, I will say one other thing that Justice Scalia talked about in Lamb's Chapel, and it's maybe why that although Lemon isn't the problem it was three decades ago, it might be useful for the Supreme Court to finally sort of make it official, is that Lemon, although it really doesn't figure much in a typical Supreme Court Establishment Clause case anymore, if you're in front of a hostile panel of appellate judges somewhere, Lemon can still be front and center uh, and still be the justification for ruling against uh, a, a, a position that I think the Supreme Court would, would vindicate pretty rapidly. Um, so there's, there's, there's something to be said for sort of turning square corners on Lemon. And then there's one reading of Fulton where, you know, Smith is not all that relevant anymore. Um, because if, 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 if Fulton is what it means for a law to not be, you know, neutral and generally applicable, then most laws are subject to strict scrutiny already. Um, but, but there too, you know, I think that, that if the court just leaves it at that, uh, sort of Smith will, will be out there. You know, the one, the last thought just on Smith as a, as a Justice Scalia clerk who, you know, spent a lot of time on religious liberty issues. This is, this is always an awkward subject. Uh, but, but the one thing I'll say in sort of limited defense of Justice Scalia, but also as to why maybe even he'd be willing to sort of think again, is that a big part of, of his concern, I mean, of course, part of it was a love for tax, part of it was a love for bright line rules, but a big part of it was the concerns about the workability of sort of Sherbert and Yoder and how he perceived those tests would work in practice. And because RIFRA came so quickly on the heels of that, and then RLUIPA also uh, became a statute that's been applied by lots of courts. I mean, we've now had you know, two and a half decades or whatever it's been of courts applying heightened scrutiny in this context. Um, and indeed, Justice Scalia had no problem when it was a statute um, applying that test. And so in a way that is almost unique in the context of considering stare decisis and whether to overrule cases, like the workability case, you know, sort of argument should be off the table now, uh, because these, these statutes have proven perfectly workable. Uh, the sky has not fallen. Um, and so, so I, so I do think that that's, that's one aspect of this where, um, you know, the, the world does not look the way it did when Justice Scalia decided Smith in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, I, I think Justice Scalia would be quite happy to have the colleagues that he would now have on the current Supreme Court. Um, but, but one thing that doesn't look the same is these 25 years of experience with RIFRA and how workable it's been in practice. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Paul, for the enlightening discussion. I look forward to seeing how you shape the law of religious liberty over the next 30 years. Please join me. Thank you.